everybody. Welcome to Mental Health TV. Really pleased to have you with us tonight. We've got some changes, so please bear with us. Um, we're going to be talking about reducing health inequalities. Uh, obviously, my name is Nikki Lambert, and I'll be chatting away. Um, and I've also got the fantastic Dave Monday, who I don't think you've maybe seen before in the flesh, as it were. Dave? Hi, everyone. So, yes, I'm Dave Monday. I am Lead Professional Officer with Unite Union in the Health Sector, uh, and I have been one part of the amazing team that's been doing MHTV over the last 12 weeks. Uh, I've quite happily stayed behind the camera, uh, just kind of producing the episodes, uh, and I've left it up to Nikki and Vanessa being the excellent uh, faces, the <laughs> Phil and Fern, or whoever is the new kind of cool team in, in presenting land that I don't get to watch anymore. Uh, but unfortunately, Vanessa's not able to join in tonight because of traffic. Uh, so I have been drafted in as a, maybe a super substitute or maybe kind of a second division substitute. You get to choose. Uh, but what you'll notice from me tonight is I'm going to be looking down here quite a lot because I'll be trying to keep an eye on social media. So please do send in your thoughts, comments, questions any reflections on what we're talking about tonight, you can either do that on the Facebook live feeds and that's either on the MHNA page, the Unite Health page or the CTHVA page or on Twitter and you just need to use the hashtag MHTV. So with that said, um, I'd love to introduce you to our fantastic guest, John Walsh. Um, I'll let him introduce himself. He has a wide and varied career um, and absolutely just the person that we want to talk to about this issue. So John, can you tell us how you, how you got here, how you came to be in the, the role that you're in now? I can, yeah. Hi, Nikki. Hi, David. Hello. It's great to join you and the people sort of tuning into the um, discussion tonight. So my name is John Walsh. I worked for 23 years with homeless people and also people in the asylum system in Leeds. The first year or so I worked in a hostel, which you can say a bit about. And then the last was 22 years in the NHS. Two thirds of that time was on the streets working with people and the last third was actually managing the service. And I'm still in the NHS these days. I work in organisational development. Um, so my work these days is with staff and with teams who are struggling. And I'm also what's called a Freedom to Speak Up Guardian that hopefully people have heard of. So I'm a person who our staff can come to uh, in a confidential manner to raise concerns, receive support from, and I can ensure that their voice is heard and understood in the organisation. How did you come to be working in homeless person services? Tell us a little bit about that. Mm, yeah, um, it's, a, it's a, an interesting story, I think. Um, back in 1994, I'd finished a master's degree at Leeds University, nothing to do with health and care. And I was working part-time in Bradford, where I lived, and I still live, um, in sales. So I was doing part-time working in sales. And one day the phone rang, and a friend of mine was working at a hostel in Leeds, and he says, someone's going, someone's going on sabbatical for nine months. He said, would you be interested in coming for the interview for the job? And I said, yeah, sounds, sounds great. And I didn't really think about it. So I turned up at this hostel. I was interviewed by this nice guy who was a manager. And he'd give us a 20-minute interview and says, fine, do you want to start next week? And of course, when I look back on it now, I'm thinking, what about the CIB checks? And what about, you know, references and things? But anyway, it was a long time ago, 20, 26 years ago. Um, so he offered me this job and he says, come, you know, come next week, do some shifts. And I thought, that's, that's amazing. So I walked out happy. And by the time I hit the curb, anxiety hit me. And I started to think, what have I volunteered myself to do? I thought, I've volunteered myself to work in a hospital with people with mental health problems, alcohol addiction. Mm. And I thought, I can't do this. And I thought, I've just volunteered for something here. And I thought, this is awful. And then suddenly a thought came to me. The manager had said to me, 
I'll ring you next week for some shifts. And I thought, ah, when he rings me, I'll just really politely, kindly turn him down. And the anxiety just flew away from me. And I thought, that's great. So I went for the bus and I was happy. Anyway, I forgot about it really. And a week later, I got this call at the sales office I was working in. And it was a manager. And he, he rang me and said, oh, could you come in tomorrow for a shift? And I said, yes, I will. And I don't know why I said yes. And I put the phone down. And I thought, <laughs> why have I said yes? And I just started to panic really. And I thought, and as the day went on, maybe I was having a bad day at work or something. I still don't know why I said yes. But as the day went on, I got more and more anxious and I thought, I can't, what am I doing here? And I volunteered for this stuff. And the way I'm wired, I thought, I can't, t- I can't let this guy down. I can't not turn up because I've said I'll be there. Mm. So I thought I've got to do it. So the next day I woke up um, and I got a bus to Leeds and I got a bus out to the area where the hostel was. And it was just awful. It was like, I mean, I've never actually been, I visited prison, but I've never been to stay in prison. It was like mm. literally been on a, on a bus to prison. It was like sort of Shawshank Redemption without any redemption. Just been on this bus, <laughs> just travelling, travelling. And I thought, this is awful. And I, and I got there under a lovely team with mm. great people to work with. And I worked there for nine months. And, uh, By I found, accident. <laughs> I found I could do it. I I could do it. And, and it's something we often share in training and leadership work we do about. Sometimes we have those fears in our head that says, you can't do it, it won't work, don't do it. And sometimes we just have to take, I think, those those positive risks. And at the end of nine months, I remember I was looking in the paper every Thursday for jobs because this is, this is pre-internet, I think, certainly for me. And I remember one Thursday I looked and at the left-hand corner, this this ad lit up. That, that's my memory of it anyway. almost like illuminated. And it said, primary healthcare team set up in Leeds looking for support workers. So I applied for the job as a support worker there and I started to work there as a support worker. The job changed within, I think, a couple of years into a mental health support worker. And I started to work with homeless people in, in the city of Leeds in, in January the 16th, 1995. So I remember, mm-hmm. I remember the date, actually. I often don't remember dates at all, but I didn't remember <laughs> the um, And it was, it was a great, great thing. And I learned so much. And I sometimes say, and it's not a pious platitude, it really is true, that homeless people gave me more than I ever gave them. They played a massive role in my development, my discovery of myself. And I think an insight, hopefully, into what good care should be. Hmm. Yeah. So for, for people who are listening, maybe who, who don't haven't worked with this population, who don't know maybe a lot about the health issues and the exclusions that they face, could you just give us a little bit of a, an overview so that people can understand what, what some of the concerns are? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question, Nikki. And um, I'm trying to think the best way to sort of stress it really. And I think may, maybe maybe one of the best ways I can explain it is, is we tried to we tried in the in the homeless centre I was in to do a lot of thinking and reflection on the work, not just do the work, but do thinking about the work. Mm. One of the things we found really helpful was the Maori model of well-being. And I always like that word well-being because it's not well arm, well leg, well mind, it's the whole person. Mm. And the Maoris talk about well-being as a house with four walls. So there's the physical, the mental, emotional, the social, and the spiritual in terms of meaning and purpose. And I think we saw our role as supporting that whole person approach. So our, our aim was certainly to do things like wound dressings. Our role was certainly to address issues like addiction and alcohol. Um, our, our role was certainly to look at the social issues of, of inclusion and housing and clothing and, and, and food. Mm. But it was also to help people on their journey to, to find themselves. And I think it's interesting, we th- we saw three groups of people, I think, in that centre. We saw first a group of people who we would get, because we got quite good at getting housing, accommodation, food, medication, support for them. And we'd see 
first group would become homeless within six months or a year. They'd have all this, but they'd lose income, would come back mm. to homelessness. A second group, probably a bigger group, would stay housed, but they often, bless them, stayed the unhappy, distressed, housed. So a lot of the underlying problems were never really dealt with, although mm. the accommodation was officially sorted. So technically, they weren't homeless anymore. Mm. And we saw another group of people, and we worked with all three groups, but we saw another group of people who made some incredible recoveries and had some incredible journeys. And in every one of those cases, I had the privilege and the honour to work with, really. It's people who found themselves and people who found a sense of hope and found a sense of meaning and a sense of purpose. So we did a lot of work on hope. We did a lot of work on what people's passions were and what people wanted and how we could move and bend our systems to try to make them serve those people. So I would say that homeless people bring, in, in a certain sense, but not in another, the same issues we all have. So there may be physical things, there may be mental, emotional things, there may be issues of, of meaning and purpose, there may be social issues about, about housing or, or, or whatever the social aspect might be. But I think it was we try to have that holistic approach to address the issues. And I would say out of all the hundreds and hundreds of homeless people I met, Indigenous homeless people, I never met a homeless person whose issues didn't go back to childhood. I can't think yeah. of any case. I, I never met a man who was a banker three years ago and have lost everything and now they're homeless. I don't mm. deny that could happen or has happened mm. maybe. But the people we met, the issues went back a long time. So by the yeah. time we met them and we encountered those people and tried to work with them, there was lots of stuff. And I think lots of stuff were probably effects of things that had happened. Yeah, sort of adverse childhood experiences, is that the sort yeah, of thing you're talking least, about? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, it's 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 a really interesting thing, isn't it? Because I think, you know, you're, you're moving very far away from the biomedical model. Mm -hmm. So you're still giving physical care, but that's not what this is. And if people look at it from like that strict problem solving, it's like house, not homeless, no problem. And you're actually saying, actually, none of neither of those things really helps the core of this population at all. So what... what Go on. Sorry, yeah. sorry, I'll let you finish your question. <laughs> I was question. It was more like a noodly thought. <laughs> so I think what I was um, wanting to talk to you a bit more about as well is um, I too was sort of kind of socialised during that time when people were looking very much at kind of Australasian indigenous cultures to see how they manage their health. And absolutely, that speaks really, really connects to me and, and the way I started to learn to practice. So, what would you say to sort of nurses who say, you know, hope is not our business? You know, we are. We're nurses, we deal with health. Health is not hope. Okay, so that's a good question. Um, I think it's probably a debate in, I remember a nurse, wasn't a mental health nurse, telling me when he worked in a certain part of the... No, we've lost John a little bit there. Oh, We're back in a bit. said to him, <laughs> you leave your emotions at the door. You know, you definitely leave them there. You don't bring them onto the ward. When mm -hmm. we had that discussion... When we unpacked that, we thought, well, actually, that is um, a call to be a robot, really, and not to be human and not to have those emotions. Um, and I think that's that's not what we are. We are wired to feel. We are wired to care. And I think there's lots of, you know, sort of evidence that says that we all need hope. 
And I think I remember once there's a big thing called NHS Expo that's a big mm. national NHS event that takes place in Manchester every year and all the senior leadership of the NHS are there and the Secretary of State's there. And I've done workshops at Expo through the years. I remember once I did one with a, um, a great colleague of mine, Max, we had a room full of NHS people and we the people in the room, how many people in this room have spoken about targets in your teams? And every hand went up. And we said, well, how many of you talked about, you know, um, income generation or business or, or finance or budgets? And every single hand went up. And we said, then we said, well, and how many of you spoke about hope? And one hand went up at the back. And that was somebody who knows us and knows what we're going to say. And I, th I think that's amazing because I think the NHS, yeah. for all its, all its difficulties and faults, is a sign of hope, as is social mm. care. They are signs of mm. social hope. They are a message to the world and to people in this country that, Money is not what determines what people receive and that need should be the driver for, for health and care. So I think that the fundamentals of the NHS are around that deep, deep care that we as a society want to care for people, especially the most marginalised and vulnerable people. So mm. to me, hope has to be part of that equation and that conversation or else mm. we're not being true, we're not really being radical, you know, which means, which means there's been no to return to the roots of what mm. the NHS was and is which is a sign of tremendous, it's a sign and source of tremendous social hope. And it says something about what we, despite everything, can do and do do every day. Mm. Yeah, I agree. I mean, someone without hope is not well. Yeah. They might not have a technical sickness that you can, you know, you can go to the DSM for, the ICD, and actually say this is it. But if they're not physically showing signs of an illness, they will shortly. So I, I really do, really to get on board with what you're saying around this idea about thinking holistically. Well, um, so just on that, it's really interesting because I know a senior uh, figure in the NHS who's a friend and a great, great person, great leader. And he, many years, I remember been at home many years ago meeting one of his blogs, and the blog said, in essence, about his brother who had, you know, had had had, you know, a wife and a family and a job, and you know, and actually his brother went actually took his life. And he asked for many years, I've asked myself, why, why did that happen? How did that happen? And he said, I've discovered, I think, the answer. And the answer is somewhere along the line, my brother lost hope. And I remember sat at home reading this and thinking, yeah, hope is so important. And vulnerability, it really altered my view of vulnerability because previous to that, I'd thought vulnerable people were just people who were asleep in the streets of whichever city they're in. And actually, vulnerability can be something that affects all human beings. And you know, we could have the situation where the man under sleeping rough tonight under the building, certainly vulnerable, certainly vulnerable, and needs all our care and support. But the man who works in that building as a manager or as an office, or whatever he work, maybe the person is kin, suicidal thoughts, having suicidal ideation and intention. So it mm. really challenged my views of vulnerability that certainly marginalised people and groups are massively vulnerable. I'm not denying that. But also there's something about where does hope play in this? And when we lose hope... I think we lose we lose, we lose something which we can't uh, we, we, which we can't function properly. I think without, and I think mm. what I saw with many working many homeless people was people find themselves and find hope and, and find that sense of meaning. And we know from Viktor Frankl's works in the concentration camps as a psychiatrist, the people who came through and went on to have positive existences were people who somehow kept some sense of meaning and hope. Mm. And I think it's different things for different people. And I know we can't go down forcing people to be hopeful because that would be oppression. Mm. Mm. But I think what we can do as human beings and as nurses or as, as doctors or as medics or as receptionists is we can create spaces where people can find themselves 
listening spaces where people can identify and engage with their hopes. Mm. It's, it's such an interesting thing, isn't it, with this idea about um, vulnerability. So what does it mean to be vulnerable? And I think when I was sort of being educated, vulnerability was the label we put on other people and, and used it as a like a permanent state of being, rather than thinking every human being can be vulnerable at different parts of their lives, according to what's going on for them, according to what the hierarchy and system is around them. And now we see what happens when staff are vulnerable, you know, to stress, to pressure, to burnout. And it's the same pattern, isn't it? Because we're all human beings that are losing hope. So there is a lot, I think, of connection to be, to be thought about. There's, there's a lovely quotation from Simon Sinek, the, the leadership sort of writer, where it is, I think it's really applicable during COVID and we've mm. used it in our trust. And, and the quote is something like, we are all in this together and we are, we are our own best hope. I think it's a really powerful thing because the first bit's about we are all in this together. So it's about how do we work together, connect together. This is about collectivity. But it's mm. also about what, we, what happens when we do that authentically, meaningfully, and with hope, actually, we become our own best hope. Because in a sense, we create community, whatever that means. So what practice have you seen recently that you found, you know, really gave you that sense of hope? So people, either people's working styles or ideas? Um, I think one of the most fundamental things I see, and I see it again and again, I I saw it with homeless people, I saw it work with homeless people, is the tremendous levels of kindness, I think, in humanity, and we've seen it during COVID, I think, as well, um, that people express. Um, and I think I've, I've seen I've seen it in staff situations. There's something about the, the, the power, the kindness that human beings can have that can make such and such a difference. So mm. just, just to give one example, when my mother was dying of cancer in 2007, if you look to her GP record, her GP did nothing more than any other GP would do. Referral letters, medication, etc. But it, but it's the presence that GP created for my mother that made the difference. And that presence was kind, open, mm-hmm. and empathic, listening, presence. And there's something about the ability to be able to create what Carl Rogers talked, the psychologist talked about as presence, that congruence, empathy, listening, acceptance. When we can create that presence with people, Something even even though my mother was had a terminal illness, there was something about that presence that made helped her feel included, valued, and loved. I would say as well. And I know it's an interesting word to use, and we often don't use it in our services. I heard a lovely story. I met. I spoke to somebody once whose whose father, as a psychiatrist, was trained by Carl Menninger, who sometimes called the father of American psychiatry. And this person said that when her dad was training as a psychiatrist, the first thing they learned from Carl Menninger was, when you go on the wards, when you work in the community, your first duty is to love the people you meet. And by that, he meant to have that deep care, that deep concern, that deep commitment to people. And in some ways, and it, it's it, 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 to see through the problem to the person who's there and to mm. discover their story, their struggles, their hopes, to really encounter that human being. And I think if we can do that, that's where we get the change and the good care and the good services. And I think where services fail is where we've stuck we stuck with the label and the problem. Yeah. That reminds me actually, I did have a question that came through from a student um, earlier on. Um, they prefer to withhold their name and that's absolutely fine. So do do bear in mind if anybody wants to um 
ask a question, but they don't feel confident about that. Um, you can absolutely do that through DMs and things like that. That's no problem. We always we'd rather you ask the question, even if it makes you feel like you're comfortable. If you want to know the answer, that's it's fine. Um, and the basic gist of the question is, it's um, I think a, a very junior, from what I can gather, um, a junior student who is. Um, working with people with this vulnerability, people have had homelessness experience, and they seem to be very concerned and very worried about what will happen if they show disgust or if something happens that they, that causes them to hurt the feelings of the person they're working with. They're very worried about smells and things like that. And I wonder what you, what you would have to say and advise on that. How can a person give good care? Okay, I mean, the first thing I'd say is thank you for the question, because it's mm. such an honest question. And I think the more we have honest questions where we talk about where we might struggle a bit. I think the healthier we are as systems um, and as, as services and people. Um, mm. So in terms of the question, I think there's something about recognising where we're not feeling comfortable with something. And I would say, you know, finding a way perhaps to talk to a colleague or in supervision or in reflective practice about that um, and sense making of it. Um, there may be probably with with lots of people we work with and meet with there may be aspects about them that don't chime well with us or jar with us and i think it's about you know that's probably human but there's something perhaps about what we do with it is the key thing so we wouldn't necessarily we wouldn't vocalize it but we might need to process it and find a way to process it either individually or talking with colleagues about it um so i think there are things which we might find challenging in, in people's, you know, it's not homeless people, it's everyone, I suppose, really, behaviour or language or whatever that might be. Um, and it's finding ways to be able to work with it, but not do so in a way which is insensitive to the person. And my guess, I don't know, I don't know the student who's wrote in, and I mm. doubt I ever will meet the person. Mm. Um, I think that from their question and their level of sensitivity and care, I think that's what comes through to people. I mean, I made loads of mistakes. I've always made mistakes working with people, and I still will. I probably, probably leave this planet making mistakes. But, but at the same time, I think people, people read us quite well. I think people we meet readers. I think if people can pick up, as in the student, if they pick up that care, that willingness to want to help, to to be a difference, that's what really matters. You know, mm. that's what really matters. And I, I found people where I have got stuff wrong incredibly forgiving. Um, yeah. when I've said something wrong or I've got something wrong or I've misunderstood. Um, I think people, readers, and I th if they can read a genuine heart that cares and wants to make a difference, I think that that's the important thing and that's what will come over. And I wouldn't worry too much about our language, process our thoughts, of course, but I think if, we, if, if we've got the intent, that good intent and we work with it and we keep reflecting, I think we'll be okay. Mm, I agree. I don't think anyone who's got any expertise has got it without making a ton of mistakes. Mm. One of the best skills you can learn, I think, is to learn how to apologise. So I think there's a lot of professionals who get very worried about apologising. They think somehow it's going to undermine them. But if you make a mistake, just say, I'm really sorry, I didn't, I didn't mean to hurt your feelings. That wasn't what I was trying to do. I think as well, Nikki, just to add to that, really, to build on that, I think as well, it's great that we celebrate our successes and, and you know, I very much believe in celebrating all the good stuff that the NHS, mental health, nursing, etc. does. I think as well, sometimes as important, in some cases more importantly, is talking honestly about our failures. Mm. It's not in our successes where people die. It's not in our successes where patients are harmed. It's not in our successes where uh, staff are bullied. So really learning from the failures is really important, I think, and really being honest about the failures. 
So I think there's something about really, and maybe the failures are, when you think of Mid Staffordshire as an example, perhaps uh, perhaps horrendous stuff that happened there. Um, so, so there's something about learning, really, I think, from mm. when things go wrong, as well as just celebrating all the good stuff that happens. Mm. We should um, come over to Dave and see if there's any questions for us. It's funny you say that, Nicky, there is. Uh, we've had a few comments. I thought so. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's the brainwaves. Uh, we've had a few questions and thoughts over on Facebook. Uh, obviously, thanks for the people who've contributed. Uh, before we go into one of the questions, Alfonso, yes, I do exist. I am here now in front of the camera. Uh, next, Adrian, he agrees with you about uh, how service users at homeless uh, can cause both challenges, but also can be really rewarding for, for people in practice. Uh, and the question that is put is, how can we make services more inclusive for them? The trauma is often vast and the presentation to services is very complex. Services are offered exclusive, uh, sorry, services are often exclusive focused and NFA is often an unofficial exclusion. So I'm guessing NFA is no fixed abode. That's a great question. So thank you for that. Is it Alfonso? Adrian. Yeah, Adrian. Adrian. Sorry, Adrian. Thank you, Adrian. It's a really, really good question. Um, I, th I think I think creating inclusive services and knocking down some of the silos organisationally can really help. And I don't know who actually established the service I joined in 1995, but one thing that I didn't notice at the time, but I've reflected on it since is when I joined that team and I was there on the first day, there was myself, another support worker, a GP, a practice nurse, an administrator and a mental health nurse. And it's really interesting to have the mental health nurse in 1995 in primary care. Now, we know now with a lot of integration work, um, uh, mental health work, mental health nurses are working in GP services, which I think is a great thing. Actually, back there, somebody had the, the division, I'd say, to think, well, actually, let's put a mental health nurse working the primary health care team for homeless people. So I think the more we can bring together, not, not necessarily merge organisations, so I don't think it's about that, the more we can bring together the disciplines and expertise and different voices and work with that. And we also, at one point, we invited social care to be part of the work, and we did work with social care as well. Um, and we used, to have, we used to invite everyone and we used, to have, we used to have solicitors coming in, housing people, podiatrists, MSK workers, dentists could come in. We'd create space for anyone that housing would come in. So we did all we could to bring services into that building to create, I suppose, I suppose um, a bit of a hub that people didn't have to travel over the city to get the service to get it where they came. And I think there's something about joining together what really should never have been separated. So it's, it's a really interesting point in 1947, 1948, when the NHS was established, we know it was Nye Bevan who was the minister who led that, the Labour minister. And what I discovered a few years ago was, and I was quite taken aback really, was we all believe that Nye Bevan was the Labour minister for health, and he wasn't. He was the minister for health and housing. So 70 years ago, they knew that health and housing goes together. They know that poor housing led to poor health, and poor health led people to poor housing and sometimes homelessness. When I, when I joined the, the Century in 1995 in Leeds, the homeless primary care team, um, there was no connection between health and housing. And one of the things I did in the first several months, actually, I went to meet the managers from, from the, the local housing office who worked for homeless people. And we used to go for coffee and talk. And what, what we created was a relationship. And on the basis of that relationship, we, re, we were able to do really good work. And I think something we did do was we flexed and bent the system without breaking it. 
So I would get a call on a Thursday and it'd be the housing office saying, we've got somebody in here, we're really, really worried about their health. And I would say, look, we'll sort an appointment now if you don't want to send them down half an hour, we'll see them, we'll get them in somehow and we will do it. Um, or in some cases, we, we might even send somebody out like myself, I would go out and meet them or whatever. Mm. But also, when I would take people up the road to that housing office, the managers would say, just leave them. Yep. We, we can sort it, we'll sort them. We created a relationship between ourselves and understanding that hadn't pre-existed, but that benefited the people we both were working with. So we brought together what really never should have been separated. Mm. I'm not necessarily in, in, in favour of fusing everything in one big, 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 organi- big monolithic organisation, but there's something about creating the relationships that can allow the work. And I remember when I was in the homeless centre for several years before the functional model came on wards, where each psychiatrist used to have their own beds and their own wards. Mm. We had a psychiatrist allocated to who was a great guy who did lots of good work. And he had a certain ward under the hospitals in Leeds. And amazing work took place there. And that ward became a real centre really quickly of excellence. We're working with homeless people and working with housing and working with all these other things. I remember one of the things he told me was, he said, you know, it's interesting. I've got the longest stay in hospital for patients. He said, but I've also got the lowest return of patients to hospital as well. And that, that really struck me because what used to happen was when somebody was admitted, we would all wrap services around that person and make sure that all those things, insofar as we could, that the Maoris talk about the social, the mental, the emotional, the physical, everything was, was was as much as we could do before a discharge happened. And there was a, there was a post-discharge plan yeah. that would support the local community mental health team in terms of visits, etc. And we'd bring in housing support workers, etc., to visit and support. So there's something to me about how do we put together the pieces, not just organisationally, but relationally? And if we can create those relationships and really get partnership right. And I think sometimes through the years, I've spoke to people about partnerships. And sometimes when you ask people, to, well, what do you mean by partnership? They often talk about getting someone else to do what they want, which sounds more a bit like manipulation, to be honest. And true partnerships work is about bringing what we have to create something that can make a difference, I think. And so I would say, just in terms of Adrian's question, I think the more we can bring in and learn from each other, and that mental health nurse on our team, that, that that's mm. not the same person, but we had a mental health nurse on that team for all the years I was there, they brought a tremendous learning to that team, a tremendous mm. learning to us all. So I think there's something about how we bring people together in teams and work and learn together. I think that's a key thing in terms of trying to create the right sort of settings and teams to address health inequalities. I would say that my, I, mean, I think it's changed quite a lot in the last few years, particularly through a great gypsy traveller nurse we have in Leeds, who does amazing work. Um, and I think part of her work has convinced me that specialist centres are good, but we have to also transform the wider system. Mm. So it's great that homeless people have homeless centres, but what about the rest of the system? And we have to look at transforming the rest of the system so they can offer those same levels of care and understand them. Mm-hmm. Dave, did you want to come in on that? Yeah, it, it's really difficult, isn't it, sitting here and listening to all this really good stuff because I've kind of got so many thoughts from all the things that you said so far. And I've been sort of like jotting a few notes down because I didn't want to miss any out. I think the bit that you've just been talking about, it kind of sounds to me like the flexibility of services and how do we make sure that services can flex to fit the the needs of the people that we're here to, to at the end of the day, look after. I think in my own experience, both in practice as a health visitor, but also as a, a trade union official, is that bit about the importance of capacity and the importance of not kind of commissioning out the, the quality. 
Mm. What I often see is, you know, people are pressurized to do more and more with less and less. And that makes it so much harder to have these kind of connections and to do this really innovative work. And like I say, when I think back to when I was a health visitor, some of the really good stuff that we did back then, we could do it because we had enough time to be able to innovate, to talk to people. Mm. You know, I could sit outside a GP's office for for 30 minutes to make sure that I actually eyeballed the GP and and got to tell them about some of the problems that that some of their clients were facing. And, And it really worries me that we kind of, you know, we, we kind of build that out of the system by by the, some of the things that, that go on. I think the other thing that's really interesting and important is that bit about the importance of social care. And it's not just about kind of saying, oh, well, you know, let's have a minister that's Department of Health and social care um, job done. Actually, how do we really meaningfully kind of integrate the services in the system? And it doesn't have to be that they're all in the same, you know, organisation but they all have the time to talk to each other. I think the other bit that I wanted to reflect on as well, if, if you don't mind, is the bit about uh, saying sorry. Uh, and I know I'm sort of jumping back a little bit here, but just thinking back to a couple of years ago, all the work that we did, you know, across the trade unions around duty of candor, you know, the, the kind of real realisation that people mm-hmm. deserve to be, uh, you know, we they need our honesty and they also need to be, uh, you know, the, 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 the honesty of when things go wrong, talking to people about that. And it is important for people to be able to articulate when they've done things wrong and to feel supported through that process and not to feel like they've got to cover it up and hide it, hide it away. So I, I think that was, that was really good too. One of the things I did want to challenge you on, and maybe this is a question, is the bit about all in this together. Now, if we were all in this together, then wouldn't we have sorted out homelessness years ago and not waited for the COVID crisis to solve it for a few weeks, and then to think, actually, now it's going back a bit, we, we're okay with people being homeless again. Yeah, it's a great question. It's a great challenge, David. It's a great question. Um, and I think, yeah, so I think all, all of us are in this together, I think is, I think it's the truth, and I think it's an aspiration. So I think that, so if, 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 if all of us on this line tonight worked in different parts of the system with homeless people, in a sense, we are in it all together, but are we joined up? Are we listening and are we learning together? Like I said, with social care, are we allowing social care to, to change and develop our practice and vice versa? So I think we are connected and in this together, but I think there's an aspiration that we have to make this real, we have to make this conscious, we have to come together. And I think we do live, unfortunately, in a very unequal society. I think, again, COVID has raised that, particularly with... BAME communities and BAME people. Um, we do live in a very unfair and unequal society. And I think there's something about, so the work we work we did, we often talked about creating a strategic alliance for change or a coalition of care. So the aim would be to, across the city, which anyone could be part of. So whether you were a shopkeeper, you were, I mean, we used to do clinics at McDonald's every morning. We see people used to come in for coffee. We used to sort of just see people and respond to their needs. Um, NHS, local authority, faith, communities, community. We work with everyone in that circle. We work with politicians in the city who are really supportive in the local authority. Um, so I think that I did. So, so I think there's something about, but at the same time, what we couldn't do was change government policy. We couldn't change global capitalism. We couldn't change um, less money coming into certain services. That's what we couldn't change. That's what we didn't have influence or control over. 
what we could do was, insofar as we could, so just, just to give one example, I remember somebody, a great guy called Dave Patterson from Unity in Poverty Action coming to visit us one day. And it was one of these meetings where we met for coffee, we just ended up talking and we thought, you know, Summer, what we know in the city is when our doors shut, other doors open. And it's often faith communities giving food, giving friendship, giving clothing. And we thought, wouldn't it be great to just invite people into a meeting and say, Let's meet each other, but don't change anything you're doing because it's your work, not ours. And we don't want to control it, but wouldn't it be great to have a bit of a map to show what was happening? And this is a couple of years before food banks, actually. So we did that and we created this Leeds Homeless Food Map. And what it meant was that services, and we were amazed at what was available, that people could have lots of stuff across the city every day of the week, sometimes afternoons and evenings, so they could receive food and friendship. And that's a piece of work we did and we brought people together to do that. Now, so all those people are already doing that work. And our aim was, in a sense, to create a little bit of a, a collectivity so that this could have, hopefully, bigger impact and, and, and better service to homeless people. So hearing you speak, I think the stuff here, which I know this stuff way beyond our control, and we're probably living now in a global pandemic where there's stuff beyond anyone's control. There's no one who's mm. got total power over any of this stuff anymore. Mm. But So there are things which we can't change. And I'm, I'm, I used to go a lot to... Alcoholics Anonymous meetings with, with um, service users. And I always remember sometimes used to end with a thing called the Serenity Prayer, which is all about accepting the things we cannot change, the courage to change the things we can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And it really struck me, whether people are religious or spiritual or not really, is it's that sense of there's some things which we can't change at the moment, but there are yeah. things we can. And how do we know those things and focus our energies where change is really possible? Mm. I was just, it, this is whizzed by. Um, I was just thinking we've got like 10 minutes left and I know we've got more questions. So should I go to Dave and you just you just let us know what questions we've got? <laughs> yes, I, so I know we've, uh, as, as usual, we've had a few students uh, contributing. Uh, one of the mm. questions, uh, why do people leave a house after you've sorted it out? Oh, that's good. That's a really good question. If that's the problem is homelessness, I think that's what they were saying. So yeah. once, you, once you have it, what? Because you said that at the start, you remember there's a third of people who just don't stay in housing. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there was. I think I talked about three groups. I don't know the exact percentages, but we would see people get nice accommodation, furnished accommodation with support, and then they become homeless again. My guess is, is, um, and I'll put it in the form of a story if I, if I can. We used to every year go every year we used to go for about a week into a sixth form college to do work with students around homelessness. And one of the exercises we always used to do was we put the word home on, on, on a flip chart and we'd say, what does that mean to you? And we did it with hundreds of students through the years. I think there was two students who ever said it was a pair of keys. They all said, oh, it's a place where I can chill out and it's a place of privacy and a place of love and a place for my family. It's a place where I can shut the door and lock out the world. And I think the lesson we always sort of reflected back to the classroom was, so actually home is about meeting some very fundamental human needs that we all have. So it's not about getting somebody a house. And we got quite good at getting people accommodation. Obviously, you know, accommodation is a great thing. But it's home is a lot, lot more than that. Mm. And to actually any of us who, as all of us on this call, I assume, are doing, anyone to run a house, it's, it's not always easy to run a house or manage a house. Mm. Um, particularly if you've had the cards stacked against you from an early age. So I think there's something about the skills needed to run a house, which I struggle with. I'll, I'll put my hands up, I'm 55 and I still struggle with it. Um, but I think there's something about what home is and that homelessness isn't houselessness. We've perhaps made it into that. You know, if you're homeless tonight, Nick, I'll give you a pair of keys, you've got a flat, you're no longer homeless, you're off the books. But that's not home. 
that's the flat, it's accommodation, mm. only something we make. So I think to ask these questions, I think bring us to some quite deep places in terms of our fundamental human needs. Mm. It is a really good question, actually. When I first saw it, I thought, oh, there's probably a few reasons. But actually, it's a very personal and deep thing for people, isn't it? I mean, can you imagine if all your life you've been told your homelessness is your problem, you get given a bed and a place to stay, and it is not better. Nothing is different for you inside. It might be much easier for you to go back to the community of people that you know, people who are rough sleeping. And I think there's a lot of yeah, a lot of truth in that. Um, I think just just when you were describing, you know, when students feedback on what's a home as well, one of the things that came into my head, and maybe this is one of the problems that we've got in in some parts of society, is you know, what is a home? Did any of them say, well, it's a way to make an income, it's a way to make a load of money because they're going to invest in houses and you know mm-hmm. want to build that money in you know over a period of time, and and again that kind of bit about have we got a society that you know, people do take advantage of it and make a huge amount of money. And actually, if we took that out of the system, we'd have a much more kind of positive and, you know, uh, productive relationship with mm. with home ownership or, you know, living in homes. Mm. Yeah. I mean, the other thing is as well, that some of the places that we offer people to stay are frankly quite frightening to people. Mm. I've seen some, because we have such a crisis in terms of finding safe accommodation for people. Um, in the past, I can remember working in places where, to be honest, the service user was like, oh, I think I should meet you outside because, you know, you're a girl and I wouldn't want you to have to come into there. And you think, if if you're trying to look out for me, what does that say about where we've put you? Yeah. Well, just as a, as a health visitor, you know, the, there were some estates that I'd go and visit where me as the, you know, kind of youngish bloke would feel a bit kind of at risk. But I was going into families where there'd be, you know, a single mum, a few kids, and 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 it just had to be where they they lived and they kind of felt secure and safe. And, you know, if I couldn't feel safe there, then mm. goodness knows how they felt. There's been another question. Uh, how can you tell what is politics and what is health? Oh, they're singing you today, aren't they, John? Good luck oh, with that. Yeah. <laughs> Dave and I'll be at the back. <laughs> It's a great question. I don't know where you draw the line. I don't know where you draw the line because health, you know, we have a Secretary of State for Health, as we know. We have health policies, government policy, etc. Department of Health as a conduit for government policy. So politics and health in this country are inextricably linked. Um, and I, d- I don't know where... I don't know if it's possible to draw a line. I don't, I don't know where 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 line, lines can be drawn. Every manifesto from every party, I'm sure I, I didn't read the last ma, ma, last manifestos in December, but I assumed all of them addressed issues like homelessness mm. and marginalisation. So I think we have a world, for better or worse, certainly this country, where politics and, and health do merge. And actually, I think the issue of where health stops is a really interesting one, because in the city I work in, in Leeds, there are three health trusts. But actually... The local authority does health work, third sector do health work, community groups do health work, people people supporting mm. their loved ones do health work, yep. carers do health work 24-7. Um, so there's something here about where does the line for health stop? So, so although the street NHS trusts, health goes far beyond there. And so I don't know where the line would be. And it's a really good question because I think it's just made me think about how enmeshed politics and health have become. Mm. And it's, I think we're not necessarily always equipping um, health workers to have these conversations in a way that they can feel confident in their professional 
um, opinions. You know, sometimes saying, you know, you, you can't talk about politics, you've got to just talk about health, you can't. Whereas we can see really clearly that someone with our house, their health is compromised. It's really obvious. And, and to the point where actually some, some countries have actually just had a housing first policy, which is when you're trying to sort any issue out, person has a house first and then you put the rest of the services in around you don't get someone to a stage where they're okay you actually look after them in terms of their physical safety and well-being and then work the rest of the services in around and i think that's a really interesting model it is it's kind of a maslow model isn't it i suppose of doing that very basic stuff that people need and building from from mm. there really so i think there's something yeah there's, there's certainly something and actually you're right nick because sometimes almost people have got to get right to get a house yeah. I mean, I think things have changed, actually. I mean, I've been at homeless mm. since a few years, mm. but I think things have changed, um, I think, I think on some of that stuff, though. Yeah, we're getting better at meeting people where they are, I think, rather than expecting some miracle. Because if the miracle was happening, we wouldn't be needed at all, would we? <laughs> it would just sort itself out. So is there any more questions then, Dave? Uh, there's none that I've seen, but I, I suppose one of the ones that I've been thinking again while I've been talking, and, and maybe this is too big for right at the end, but hey, I, I'm in this position today, uh, is this thing about universal credit and actually, you know, the kind of the, the problems that universal credit has caused, meaning that people are much more likely to become homeless. Uh, and actually, do you think the government's starting to grapple that issue or is it completely lost on it? Right, Okay. So I'm here tonight in personal capacity. In a personal capacity, I'm not representing the any organisation or workplace. Um, my personal view is I have real, real worries about personal credit, uh, universal credit. Um, I would like to see a benefit system that supports people in the fullest way possible. Um, I was growing up a beneficiary of things like having a grant to go to university. Um, I very much favour bursaries being restored to nursing. Um, I believe we have to invest part of the capital of the country in our students and in our nurses. I really, really do. And I would, I would veer towards a. No, so I don't veer towards. It. I'd stand on a view of massive public expenditure to support the NHS, social care, mental health, nursing, um, and benefit systems that can support people really. And, you know, I think I think that's I think to me we're back to the NHS being a sign of social hope. I think a sign of civilization and a good society is that we care for people who are struggling. Yeah. And I think again, what we've seen through COVID is that some people that never thought that they would have to rely on the benefit system have had to rely yeah. on the benefit system and have actually found how wanting it is. And, you know, whereas when they were kind of secure, felt that the benefit system was this thing that that gave out to anyone that was skiving a bit and it was really generous. And actually, a few weeks later, they're in that situation that they rely on it and they realise how woeful it is. Uh, and I think that's why we've got to, you know, really press the message at the moment. Uh, and interestingly, this this month's Mental Health Nursing Journal, I've, I've read a pre-publication version of it. Uh, you know, we've got... Uh, Paul Farmer there, the chief exec of Mind, and one of the things he talks about is the benefit system and, and how it needs a, a, a radical overhaul. So I, I think, you know, we're, we're all kind of coalescing around that message because it's such an important one. But, you know, obviously the frustration is I don't think we've got a government that wants to hear that message. That's a reasonably fair assessment, Dave. <laughs> I think everyone's going to be calling you on that. <laughs> seems, seems a reasonable, yeah, view. yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. Oh, we'll, we'll keep we're, pushing. <laughs> <laughs> we're nearly at the end of time, so I guess now, um, if people could just think about if there's anything that they want to talk about in terms of where we're going, we're heading in the future in terms of managing inequalities or supporting marginalised populations, that would be, be a good thing to hear. So future directions, what's coming up? Uh, sure. Have you not thought, John? I know it's... Oh, sorry. Um, I think maybe the, one of the first things is, I would say, is around awareness of where people are and I think we always have to freshly discover where people are and I've had conversations in the last number of months with staff for example with shielding and it's been revelation time for me because I've thought I didn't know that I didn't know that I didn't realize that and that galvanizes me to think what do I need to do differently what does our organization need to do working very close to the past several months with BAME colleagues as well has really brought things home to me and I'm weekly and daily meeting with them and trying to change our systems to make sure our systems represent and include those good colleagues. And I think it's the same with all these marginalised communities as well, with all marginalised communities. How do we become aware? And I remember when I was at the Homeless Centre, we'd often have national figures from the NHS or leading regional figures would come for visits. And we'd often take them around, we'd take them around the streets, we'd sit in doorways with people, we'd go to the asylum centres. And that experience, it's about experiential learning, the power of experiential learning, it would blow, blow people away. I remember somebody in a very senior position in the NHS saying, I think I should resign my job as a, as a, as a senior person and go back to frontline nursing from what I've seen. And it had really impacted them. And I said, well, no, no, you'd have to do that because we need good people like you in those senior mm -hmm. positions. But there's something about encountering and opening ourselves up to, you know, what's there and where people are. And we have a situation in this country where mortality rates for Egyptian traveller people are 50 years old. If you're a homeless man, they'll probably die at 47. And if you're a homeless woman, they'll probably die at 43. And there's something incredibly unjust and wrong about that. Mm -hmm. And I know we're back to what we can control, not what we can't control. But there's something about what we can create together in terms of connecting, sharing, linking services together, bringing resources together, making the argument, mm. dipping our toe into the political stream as well to, to, to think and urge and agitate and educate as well. Mm. Absolutely. Dave, I see you making notes. I feel concerned. <laughs> I always find it's better to make notes because then I won't kick myself later when I completely <laughs> mess it up. Uh, I think the point that I would want to make is that obviously this evening we've talked very much about homelessness and how that kind of has an unequal effect on, on people and, and the effect that it has on people's health. I think my reflection would be is that most of the MHTV episodes we've done so far have looked at one area of inequality or another. So just thinking, you know, last, last week we had Black Lives mm -hmm. Matters, a few weeks ago we had LGBTQI+. You know, it's been it's been a real kind of constant theme of, of sessions. And, and I think it's something that, that will certainly continue into the future. And just looking to next week, we've got Kate Lorimer, who's going to be talking about sexual safety in, in patient services. So, again, kind of thinking that that, that that kind of threads all the way through. I suppose the other thing is that there's lots of good work being done. Uh, including my organisations like the Centre for Mental Health, and they've obviously got their commission on equalities at the moment. Uh, and that's certainly something that's worth looking into. But mm. all the work that they do, you know, really does kind of highlight issues that that really have resonance with this. And, and you know, kudos to Sarah Hughes and Andy Bell for the work yeah. that they're doing there. 
Uh, and obviously, as always, you know, you kind of sit here being involved in it. And you think, wow, what a lot of things we've discussed over the last 50 odd minutes or so. And, you know, it's, it's, it's really good to be involved in this. And I don't often get the opportunity to say it, but, you know, a big thanks to Nikki and Vanessa, because I think they've been oh. such amazing captains of, of MHTV over the last 12 weeks and long may it continue. So uh, any final thoughts from you, Nikki? Thank you. I lost um, contact with you there for a bit, so I assume you said something nice, right? No, it was, it was amazing. <laughs> I, I hope everyone didn't... I'll watch it on the rebound <laughs> later on. I guess it's time for us to, to, to draw things to a close. What I would say is, you know, the reason we started doing this is because um, of COVID. In fact, we couldn't all get together and meet. And over the last few months, the world has changed really radically for good and bad. And we've seen some amazing things happen. So that when people had a will to tackle homelessness, it happened over a long weekend. It just was sorted. I mean, we it slipped back, but I think it shows what's, what's possible. You know, the fact that, you know, when push comes to shove, we can do things that are amazing. And I think that that's an expectation that we should have and not let this, um, not let things be scaled down and scaled back and, and lose our confidence um, on speaking out about things. So um, I think that's going to draw us to a close for today, Dave. I take it you are officially stopping us now? Yes, the finger is on the button. So should we say five, four, three, <laughs> it sounds like two, a rocket. One. Thank you very much, five. everybody. Take care. Bye-bye.